This is the Crime Board Podcast. With Sam West. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome to the Crime Board Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things crime fiction, and of course, the brilliant minds behind some great novels. I'm Sam West, and thank you for taking the time to join us, whether that's on your way to work, or back, or on a run, or simply sitting down with a cup of tea. Really glad to have you on board. Now, today's guest has secretly been a part of the show from the very beginning, her voice is actually in the intro. <laughs> the one and only Lucy Hope. A very big welcome to you. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's the real, um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this since the beginning as well. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, um, it's really cool because as I've said, you've, you've kind of been involved from the very beginning um, in the intro, uh, which is really great. Every time the intro comes up, I'm like, I'm so glad that I actually um, had someone to do that because it sounds so much better than what I could have done. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever been asked to use my voice to do anything so <laughs> I really enjoyed it too <laughs> honestly I think you should do audiobooks <laughs> yeah I'd love to do I'd love to do my own actually um I mean that'd be great yeah yeah I'll, I'll line up for that <laughs> but I think it'd be really cool yeah it'd be a great it'd be a great fun thing to have as well Mm, yeah, definitely. So you're the first person in my author friend circle who lives closest to me. Um, and by that, I mean not on the opposite end of the world. So you're originally from the UK, but you live in Namibia. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we're sort of in the neighborhood for you, but it's obviously a very, very big neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm in Lillerit, Namibia, which is on the southwest coast. Um, Namibia is a very, very big, very empty country. It's second least populated in the world. Um, and the southern half of Namibia is the emptiest bit. So it is. it does feel very remote down here. Um, but it's also extremely beautiful. It's where the desert meets the ocean. So we've got kind of big rolling sand dunes that come right down into the coastline. Um, we're here because it's the best place in the world to grow giant kelp. Um, and my husband is setting up a startup to um, grow, sort of cultivate giant kelp forests offshore um, in the cold waters of the Benguela current here. Um, and we're also setting up a school. Um, there wasn't really any um, obvious schooling options for our kids when we arrived here that were close enough to a system they'd been in before. Um, so we're setting that up with a, a school with a special focus on the ocean and oceans literacy and understanding this amazing place and the uniqueness of its environment. Wow, that's brilliant. That is so cool. Yeah, I will I'll link uh, the website and all of that information as well. Um, I think it's a really cool thing to check out. And I think it's a really great thing that you're both doing uh, for the environment, but also uh, for the kids and educating future generations. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a lot of fun. Um, being involved in a startup is you know you eat, sleep, drink, breathe kelp. <laughs> you're all you know, probably is hook, line, and sinker in the project. Um, but it's a really exciting project, and it's trying to do something that's never been done before. And we've got a brilliant team of very young, passionate, enthusiastic, mostly Namibians, certainly down here, 
Um, and yeah, it's just a, a great fun adventure. Yeah, I'll definitely link that and I'll link uh, the videos that you've also um, edited, uh, which is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, they're a recently found um, sort of love and uh, a bit of skill, I hope, is making short videos. And it's for me, it's very linked to novel writing because it's really about storytelling. Mm. Um, you know, anyone can work a camera and anyone can learn editing software, but to be able to communicate a, a message and really to grab people in and, you know, get to people's emotions, you need that storytelling element. Um, and that's the bit I most enjoy in in making these sort of Oh, short absolutely. Films. That and the fact that the, the um, you know, the, the raw material is so beautiful and amazing that you can't really go very far wrong when you've got these gorgeous shots of underwater kelp and um yeah just the amazing environment here oh absolutely that that resonates with my soul (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's brilliant and yeah you're absolutely right there definitely is a storytelling element to it and um yeah I can definitely confirm the skills are there um I've really been enjoying looking at those little videos and like learning more about what you do obviously but yeah like me as as an editing uh film nerd as well I'm like wow that was really well done like the drone shots are really nice (laughs) Yeah, no, I can't take credit for the drone shots. Those are, we've got um, a guy from the north of Namibia who has come down and he's our drone operator. And that's been a real game changer to be able to to see, to put the kelp farm, or to see the real extent of the farm as it grows and to be able to put it in its context. It's just beautiful. Yeah, I'll link all of that. Um, so please do uh, have a look at all of those. So you've written two novels. Um, spy thrillers more specifically which is very very exciting I absolutely love that that entire world um, and the genre itself or subgenre, I should say um, very exciting so what is what is your series about um, so my series follows a young female spy Sarah Black um, and it follows her career from sort of innocent beginner to hardened operative as she works her way up the greasy pole of the world of espionage um, so the first book, The King's Pawn, um, is very much her opening gambit. She's very young. She's very naive. Um, she's pretty over-trusting. She's got that kind of um, confidence of the youth that you think you're immortal and you think you can do anything, the kind of pippy long-stopping, <laughs> I've never done it before, so I must be good at it. Um, but she's got no real training. She's got no real experience. She's very much kind of thrown in the deep end. Um, and then as the books go on, um, obviously she'll be more experienced, she'll have more behind her, she'll be forced to make more of the difficult kind of moral trade-offs, um, you know, in the first book and a, a bit in the second, she's very kind of black and white, this is right, this is wrong. Um, but as her world gets more complicated, um, she will be forced to realize that it's not always that straightforward and you do have to make calls that are difficult and uncomfortable, um, you know, to keep your eye on the the greater goal mm. Mm. yeah so so where did the series start for you what was the inspiration behind it uh, it started uh i when i was um <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a silly story when uh my first child was born um he was really really slow at feeding and i was kind of going slightly insane at having to sit in the nursing chair for a <laughs> And so my husband used to give me little prompts, little writing prompts, and I would sit with the baby oh. in one arm and the iPad in the other, and I could oh, wow. on the iPad, and I would write these little stories while feeding this incredibly slow baby um, as a way of just not going mad. 
Um, and so we kept <laughs> that up. And one day the prompt was, um, you are a young spine. You've just come out of, or you've just graduated from Oxford and you've been approached by MI6 and your father's in the cabinet office. And, you know, I can't remember how the rest of it went, but the 500 word story just became a five book novel series. <laughs> you know, I just absolutely. Um, and part of the reason why it resonated so much was because um, I had had this career in the UK government and I had lived and worked in all these amazing, unusual, strange places and met all these interesting people. And it was a really nice way of being able to record that and to remember the best bits. Um, you know, I didn't want to write a memoir, um, but it was a really fun way to relive these things and also to you know, capture the best bits of that. Um, so, but one is set in um, Georgia and Azerbaijan in the South Caucasus, which is where I had my first posting working for DFID, the UK Department of National Development. Um, book two is set in Sierra Leone, um, where I also worked. Um, book three is in China. Um, four is going to be Jordan. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're a way of capturing the, the best bits of things that really happen, but making them much more exciting to a reader by giving them a plot. Oh my goodness. I actually had no idea that you, you did that for real. <laughs> Everybody always assumed I must be a spy because I did languages at university and then um, I went off to the former Soviet Union and then Beijing and then Sierra Leone. And so people just assumed, well, obviously I was a spy, um, but I was actually working for Gifford. And so the books are a sort of, what if that had been true? You know, what, what mm. might it have looked like if, in fact, that's what I was doing? That is brilliant. I had no idea. And I think this is by far the most unique origin story, I guess, of like where a book began for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they say, you know, write the book that only you can write. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, gosh, because, yeah, okay, we'll get to because I have a question um, about research later. But obviously, if you've sort of lived it, then that's that's all the evidence I need <laughs> yeah although you know obviously you're there at one point in time and you have one view on it and yeah um, very true yeah the the story of the king's pawn is set in the time that I was living and working in Georgia um so I didn't have to do that much extra research but um the head of the snake is set during the civil war in Sierra Leone and when I was there it was five years later seven years after the events in the book um, and it was a totally different world. It was peaceful and happy and everyone was, you know, friendly and calm. And you just couldn't imagine that brutality had happened in the recent past. Um, so that required a lot of research to, to sort of put the pieces together. So I had, if you like, the stage set. I knew what it looked like. Um, I knew what people were like. I knew um, the locations. But to, to turn that into what it would have been like during the chaos of war was... With took quite a lot of um, work and planning and research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually funny um, because I I made notes while reading for myself because I I do that, <laughs> especially with with authors that I I love and books that I love. I make notes. And I'm like, wow, you're actually really descriptive, and I need to be more descriptive in my writing and stuff like that. Like, um, I think the one thing that really stood out to me, aside from obviously the story, which was great, was your attention to detail and um, really fleshing out the world or even just the space that she's in, like the room that she's in or wherever she is. Um, and for me, that was like, it's, it's, it kind of goes without saying, like it's kind of something you should know as a writer, but 
I didn't really think about it to that extent. Like you've done it so brilliantly that I had to make notes. <laughs> Thank you. That is incredibly kind. Um, it's always been very important to me that the setting is very, you know, I've always thought of the setting of each book as sort of being one of the characters. Um, so mm. the King's Pawn very is true, yeah. very much my love song to Georgia. It's an amazing country. It's very little known. And I wanted people to sort of fall in love with it through the book. Mm. Um, and of course, it's a bit of a um, difficult line to tread when you're writing genre fiction because, um, you know, a spy thriller, any sort of crime thriller, you've got to make sure that the pace and the tension and the, um, mm. you know, the getting on with the plot takes precedence because that's what readers are expecting. Um, mm. So, you, you know, getting the balance right that you're not spending too long doing the beautiful descriptions of the landscape. Um, or, or somehow making, making sure that those that do make it in make it in for a reason, I guess, is the, what a mm. lot of my editing mm. time <laughs> consists of <laughs> cutting out beautiful descriptive features and mountains and forests. And, you know, just because it doesn't mean it needs to stay in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and you kind of don't want things to turn into purple prose and then people are like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I completely get that um but at the same time it's really fun I think especially when I mean for me the locations really came alive and obviously I've never been there but I could feel what she was feeling um and that's really brilliant I mean because I could actually feel what she was going through and, and sort of see the environment and where she was location the people she was with and that really came alive off the page um so yeah very well done oh wow well thank you very much that's a really nice compliment Glad it worked. Yeah, very, very <laughs> nice. It <laughs> oh, definitely worked. <laughs> we obviously, we meet Sarah, um, well, not in chapter one, but uh, very, very close to the beginning. And it, it's obviously her brilliant uh, debut as our leading lady, but also as an MI6 agent. And our initial encounter with her is at a rather intimidating dinner with Michael, which I found really cool. Um I love the fact that he just kind of acts like he doesn't care. You know, he's he's got all this experience and she's kind of sitting there like wide-eyed and she, she doesn't know if she wants to tell him that she wants to quit. But before she can, he's kind of figured out a way to get her back in without her even realizing. And things just sort of happen so quickly. Um, but she's really, really young. She's like 22. So why was it important that we meet her at this point in her journey and not later on? Um, so I really wanted to, you know, like I say, I've always pictured the, it as a five book series and that each book in that series would be a different kind of step on her journey. So I wanted the first one really to be, she's a beginner, she's a rookie, she's very young, she's very inexperienced, she's very naive, she thinks she knows it all um, in that way that you do when you're 22, <laughs> but actually she she knows very little. And, you know, just to see, well, how does she respond to this? You know, she's then kind of thrown in the deep end pretty much without with very little by way of help and support and training and safety net. You know, does she sink or swim? How does she react? I was interested in what's it like to be a kind of young woman in a man's world. How do people respond to you when you're totally not what they expect you to be? And how do you use that to your advantage? Um, you know, I think she does use the fact that people are definitely look at her and underestimate her because she's young and female and little. Mm. And, you know, she's not a kind of tough action hero. 
Um, and she uses that to her advantage. Um, and so that's why I wanted her to be sort of quite green around the ears in this first book. Because, yeah, it's the it's the opening. It's the, 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 the first act. And as the books go on, she gets tougher. She gets more cynical. She gets sort of definitely more experienced. But she will, I hope, keep a lot of that kind of wide-eyed, um, principles, twenty-two-year-olds, and it will, that will be kind of her her lodestar. That'll be the thing she comes back to to prevent herself from ever turning into a Michael. Which is, I mean, I yeah. love I love writing Michael, and I do quite love Michael, even though he's kind of awful. Um, I do and as well. Very yeah. person, old-fashioned, and full of himself, and you know, he's sort of insufferable in so many ways. But he does always manage to just about redeem himself, just at the point that you want to, you know, throw him out of the book. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so you know, that that that's her role model. That's the the model that she's been presented with. With you know, this is how to how to be in this world, and she will eventually come to say that is you know you're a dinosaur you're something of the past that's the old white male stale model and i'm going to do something completely different yeah and that's why it's so refreshing um although i i I must say i really do i don't know what it is with me liking characters like him but he i think he really intrigues me no and that's why you know i didn't want it to be you know that all the female characters are brilliant and the men are awful and you know (laughs) just think that is a really um yeah, it's an uh, it's a pointless narrative. The story I wanted to tell is about a young female taking her place in the world and kind of unseating the image of the old stale bonds and smileys from the public imagination. But but I wanted to do that while bringing everyone along. You know that Michael is a great character. I you know I do I do love it. I, you know it's it's not that he's awful and therefore Sarah has to take over it's just well Sarah has a different way of doing things and it's her turn Mm. what I what I do uh appreciate um and I'm sure a lot of people would um with this is that you didn't immediately sort of throw them at each other into some sort of relationship because oh he's essentially her boss and you know I don't I feel like that's almost sometimes it's almost been expected um and it's refreshing to see that that's that's not the case from the get-go. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's always a sort of slight frisson of something between them, as I think there often is. Yeah. Any man and a woman who are working together, there's always that sort of sniff in the air of, oh, well, that could be a thing. Um, but it, yeah. it uh, definitely doesn't have to be a thing. Um, and yeah, yeah, between these two characters, I wouldn't want it to be a thing. Um, a, a friend of mine, I do have, uh, there is a character in the King's Pawn who is very, very closely modeled on my husband. Um, Elias um, is basically um, Daniel when I met him. It, it, no, obviously he's not, but he's very similar in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and so a friend of mine was reading it and she knew this and she'd got to this scene with Michael. She thought, oh gosh, it's Michael then. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think instincts were right that that's not meant to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gosh. Oh, can, can you imagine though? Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really do like him. I do like him, but he's not he's not my favorite. He's not my first choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I do find him really interesting. Um, and obviously in book two, we see how that relationship has changed uh, because she's obviously more sure of herself and she's she's done this now. She's been through the trenches and um, she's kind of no longer puppy dog, but she's kind of standing up to him more. Um, 
yeah, I really appreciated that as well. You know, she's she's kind of just like, oh, well, if that's what you want to do, then sorry, I don't have time for you, which I really loved. Yeah, no, I like, I mean, yeah, in book two, she's a lot tougher. She's a lot more, you know, in it. in the end, it sort of shows that she's a bit gung-ho and blinkered and actually, you know, she does better to work together than on her own. But yeah, no, it was great fun allowing that kind of more independent um, side of her out. Um, she's a bit more badass. Yeah. And in book three, that only continues to grow. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> I'm interested to see who's actually going to stick around for book three. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. we'll see. <laughs> well, I mean, other than the sort of obvious loss that I don't want to begin to spoil Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think everyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, otherwise, Chris, Michael, Beverly, obviously Sarah's father. Oh, I love him. And uh, uh, Sarah's best friend, Jenny, who has sort of a tiny role in The King's Pawn and a tiny role in The Head And she always had a bigger role in both of the books and always got edited out um, because of the need to just um, cut and get tighter and make things happen quicker and up the pace. So the scenes with her always got edited out, which I was always really sad about because I really liked the idea of this female friendship. Um, and when you're, you know, certainly for me at that age, my female friendships were the most important thing in my life. And to you know, it's one of the things that makes Sarah's role and position so difficult that she can't share this huge thing in her life with the person that she shared everything with up until that point. Um, so she has a big role finally in book three that can't be cut out. <laughs> so I was really pleased to be able to <laughs> to give her her moment. I'm really glad you didn't just you know throw away side characters that really didn't have a big role. Because um, I've done that in the past where I'm like, okay, is this character actually relevant? I think it's so lovely to to see them come back and actually have some more screen time, as it were. Um, because yeah, I think her friendship especially in the beginning in the first book um, is also really important. But then when she realizes that she's going to have to leave and she obviously can't tell, tell everybody where she's going or what's happening. I think that must've been a really big hit um, for her, you know, having to, to sort of keep things quiet, but she's also stepping into essentially uncharted waters. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that that would have been really terrifying. Yeah, no, exactly. That's, uh, that's exactly it sort of, why it was important to me that she was there and why I kind of fought to keep her. <laughs> and also what, what I found really interesting about uh, this, because this isn't really a genre that I've, or subgenre that I've really read before, not really to this extent. Um, and of course, I don't know why, because I absolutely love it. Um, it's very exciting. But I just think that, especially that opening scene, and that's what got me, not the opening scene, but the first time she's, well, we sort of meet Michael, um, when they're sitting down for dinner and she's kind of not sure if she wants to carry on with this. Um, and he just <laughs> brings these, these uh, photos to the table and the world's just carrying on around her completely oblivious as to what's happening. And I just found that contrast really uh, riveting because I think for me, what really stood out was that you never really know what's going on with people around you and their hearts and in their minds and the stuff that they're busy with. And you can kind of miss things or you do miss things, obviously, because you're oblivious to it. Um, I think that was a really powerful uh, introduction um, for us. Yeah. I mean, I think people think of spies as, you know, being in overcoats and dark glasses and hiding around corners. But actually, you know, most espionage work is done by really very normal people. 
Um, and they, you know, they have their meetings in cafes because who's listening? No one's listening. Everyone's busy on their own world yeah. doing their own thing. You know, obviously, like Michael, they'll be an absolute pro at choosing exactly the right table to make sure that you've got all the angles, that you can see what's what. But in fact, you know, the sort of hiding in plain sight is uh, the best way to be anonymous. Yeah, I love how he just knows that she's she's like cycled in in the rain. She's soaking wet. He doesn't even offer her a lift home. He just disappears, and she has to go back and get wet again. <laughs> yeah, which is typical, Michael. Yeah, just you know, I'll rock up. You sort yourself out. <laughs> but also because he knows that he knows that if he offered her, she'd be offended. You know, if he said, "Oh, you know, you and." I surely you want to get in my taxi um she'd be outraged so I think you know he's wise enough to know to let her let her struggle home in the rain as well <laughs> yeah yeah like who are you to offer me a lift <laughs> yeah I get that she's very independent I mean even at that age obviously at that point she had a lot to learn still um but yeah I think I really love how you've set her up um because from the get-go, we kind of know what she's about and what she wants, even though she's kind of not sure herself yet until that moment happens. Um, and I think what I really was looking forward to, and obviously you, you really did deliver on, was just a, a really strong female character. And I know it's, it's almost become like a cliche at this point, like for, for us to be like, oh, I have a strong, independent female character. But I think she really is a role model. Um, and I found a lot of, of things uh, with her that I absolutely loved. That was a big part of what I wanted to do with Sarah, um, was to create a female character that people would, um, you know, empathize with and understand and look up to. And it sort of started eight, like years and years and years ago. Um, my now husband and I were watching Gladiator and um, the main character in Gladiator is like such an all-round great hero. He's yeah. like this model of manhood that every man would want to be yeah. and every woman would love with. And you know, he's just clear like archetype of like that is the person that we should all be. And I was thinking, what is the female equivalent? And you know, I just couldn't, at the time, I really couldn't even think of one. I think now um, the world is different and we do have a lot of great female characters and role models and, you know, even mm. the Star Wars franchise has oh, yes. gone into a totally female direction. Um, and, you know, I think there are some, you know, I think really the world has changed and there are lots of examples now. But at that time, I just couldn't even think of one. And I really wanted Sarah to to add to that list of examples that we now have of female characters who you you know young girls can look up to who young women can want to be um but that are not you know i didn't want to write a wonder woman i didn't want her to be super um you know i didn't want her to be lara croft uh i wanted her to be quite many ways and you know that the, the things that she goes through she's in an extraordinary circumstance but she's actually quite an ordinary person dealing with it um, so that it would be relatable um, to modern readers and they would think, oh, okay, yeah, I, I could see myself in that. Um, that was really something that I wanted to wanted to achieve because I think, um, yeah, the world needs more of those, those characters, especially, especially young women. So, yes, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the BBC One uh, show that had been running for, for ages, um, Spooks. Now, mm. I know it's, it's not accurate, but as I've mentioned before with shows like Line of Duty and Marcella, it's, for me, it's about the drama. Um, 
more so than than their accuracy, obviously. But I mean, of course, accuracy or some degree of of accuracy is important. How important was accuracy in research for you while drafting these two uh, first books? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the kind of um, is it exactly how the world of espionage works? Um, well, I didn't want it to be completely outlandish, but I think actually the world of espionage is incredibly boring. It's mostly really quite mundane people doing things. So if you're going to go into the genre of spy, spy fiction, you have to take with it the kind of slight fallacy that, you know, the James Bond world that really doesn't exist in real life. Um, you know, no one is out there doing all this stuff themselves. They're just running agents and sitting in offices. Um, so from that side of things um you know i'm quite happy to take um artistic license what i did want to get right was settings people historical detail um because you know if you get that wrong i think you can really kind of pull people out of the story um and i didn't want that to happen and also um with both books i'm writing about a time that is quite recent past and the people um who were there are still alive and you know I really didn't want to get it wrong. Um, so like I said before, um, the King's Pawn uh, was sort of easier because I was there at that time and I was, you know, I knew Georgia at that moment quite well. And I wasn't really writing about anyone real other than President Saakashvili uh, appears as himself. But I, otherwise, it's mostly, um, uh, well, there were a few <laughs> characters from the British Embassy that were quite um, true to life. But I knew them well enough to write them. Um, and I hope they do. Leone <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the head of state was much more difficult because it was a period of time when I wasn't there and obviously a very different time because during the Civil War, it was really all out chaos. And this is the end of the war. So this is 10 years into a really, really brutal conflict. And so I did a lot of research on that. I read memoirs by people who were there at the time. Um, one of the ones that I based on very heavily well, two books actually really inspired it. One was a book by Steve Heaney, who was a member of the Pathfinders, who were the kind of pre-SAS group that went in, and they were the ones that take on the rebels in the village in Lungi. And so it was actually his book, re-finding his book in an Airbnb in Australia many years ago that gave me the hook that I wanted to set the story on. And the other one was uh, General David Richards. He was Brigadier David Richards at the time. He's now Baron Richards of Hesmosul. And he was the brigadier in charge of the UK military operation in Sierra Leone. And he went on to become the head of the UK army. And his account of you know how things unfolded in this sort of slightly strange and unusual way of British engagement um, in the war sort of slightly without anyone really planning it or agreeing to it, but because he saw the opportunity. That informed the account a lot. Both of them have read the book and been very kind enough to give me quotes. Um, they both really enjoyed it and have given me lovely quotes to use in my marketing, which is just amazing to have someone who was actually there read it and um, not come back and say, what is this nonsense? <laughs> but actually uh, to, to recognize the historical period and enjoy the story that is, ob you know, obviously it, it is nonsense because Sarah was not there and she did not have an instrumental role in, in the war. But so that, to have that kind of confirmation from both of them was really, really lovely. I also, uh, I, while, you know, before it was published, I got a, um, I wanted a sensitivity reader to read it because obviously when you're writing about other places and other cultures, um, it's a bit of a minefield and you absolutely don't want to get it wrong and you don't want to end up 
offending someone um, unintentionally and you want to make sure you capture it. And it was really important to me to find someone who was actually there at the time. That I wanted some, a Sierra Leonean who was in free time at the time to look at it and tell me, have I got this right? Does it ring true? Is there anything that you know is wrong or causes offense or is not as it should be? And I was amazingly lucky to find someone who was there and had this lived experience and is now in London and raced through the book and gave me some wonderful comments. And I had a great chat with them afterwards. Um, so yeah, it, it was very important to me to to have that authenticity um, and to as much as is possible, obviously it's never going to be 100% as it was, but as much as is possible, get it true to life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as authors, obviously, we do have artistic license. But I do think it's important, um, especially in, in our genre as well, not to stretch that too far beyond, you know, what, what people can uh, expect or believe. Um, because obviously, it's it's a very intricate genre. And yeah, there's so much that you can get right, but there's also a whole lot that you can get wrong. Um, so yeah, I think that's really great that that you really put the time and effort and work into to making it as good as it can be um, because I've seen a lot of time as well that ugh, there were some novels that I read that you just you kind of sit back and you're like yeah but that wouldn't happen I'm not even from there but I know that that wouldn't happen and you kind of yeah. just put the book down <laughs> no exactly I mean I think you know small bits of you know where the suspension of disbelief where that spell is broken whether or not you enjoy the rest of the book you can just think oh I'm, I'm you know I'm not into it anymore I don't trust yeah, the author exactly um and so that is something that I really didn't want to want to happen. Most of us, um, most of us on here so far, we are um, indie authors. So we're obviously going the, the self-publishing route, um, which I, I know that you've published through uh, Burning Chair, I think. What was that process like for you, um, the whole traditional publishing process? And obviously from the beginning, from drafting the, the, the story right up until publication. Um, so, yeah, the route to publication was incredibly long. Um, I did want to try the kind of traditional publication route. Um, you know, I, there's obviously a lot of pros and cons to self-publishing versus traditional publishing. But I think the biggest thing that I needed that's missing in self-publication is the kind of validation, the fact that someone else has read it enough to say, we really want to risk our business in putting this out in the world. Um, and I always felt I was doing this on my own. I, you know, the the um, imposter syndrome would kick in too hard and I would just think, no, no, it's not good enough and give up because it is a long and it is a grueling and it's a punishing process. The first book went out it was on submission for ages eventually got nowhere um the second book got rewritten and repackaged as a book two was uh there was just an awful lot of almost but not quite moments um where editors at big publishing houses really liked it but then took it to their sales team who said no no, no we don't know what to do with that and of course then it's really really lengthy when you're going through this um you know each each person who almost is going to be the one sits on it for months um, so I had sort of more or less given up on it um, and then Burning Chair came along and were very keen on book two um, and then I thought well actually I'm not quite ready to give up on book one because like I said it's always been a five book series in my mind and, and book one is the well two reasons one it, you know it, it is the beginning it is her her opening gambit but also it's my love song to Georgia and I was really sad to leave that in a drawer <laughs> because it's such a special place in my mind and my heart. 
So I thought, okay, one more last go. And I had taken it to a development editor. Um, there's an amazing editor called Rebecca Miller. If any of you indie authors out there are listening, I'm someone to give you a pair of eyes. She's brilliant. Um, and so she had looked at it and she'd given me um, just as a top level editorial comments. Um, uh, obviously, her work is uh, excellent and therefore expensive. And I hadn't been able to quite afford a you know, full development edit, but um, just the kind of top level, what are the things I need to focus on in the next draft? And she was really good at pinpointing what was missing. Um, so I had one last shot and I did a complete rewrite um, and it changed a lot, I think, in that last draft. Um, and then I sent it to Burning Chair and they really liked it, luckily. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, wanted wanted to, to run the series. Um, it has been, re working with an independent publisher has been lovely because it's very human. So I know lots of writer friends who have, you know, the big, the big deals with the big five and it all looks very exciting from the outside but actually they often feel a bit cut off from the whole process they have no say in what the cover looks like they have no say in how it's marketed you know you essentially sign it over and then it's no longer yours whereas working with a small independent publisher it's a very collaborative process and um the cover designs i've always loved from the start but i really was able to guide and um input and uh work with them until we got um something that i really loved um, and yeah, the editorial process has been lovely. It's, it's just very human. They're really, you know, they're real, really nice people. And there's no mysterious sales board hiding somewhere that I never get to talk to. It's just very, um, human and approachable, you know, obviously in terms of breach and being a, you know, having your book in on the table of Waterstones and, um, you know, really you know, being in all the magazines and the rest of it, then you do have to go for a big, five big traditionally published deal. Um, I did manage to get the head of the snake into the Financial Times, which yes. uh, was kind of pinnacle of achievement for me. Um, you know, that was when I really thought, okay, I've you know, this is this is now something that I can be proud of and happy with. Um, and that was just because I saw that Adam Labore, who does the thriller write up, had made a comment in the couple of months before saying that he was really pleased to see these new female characters with kind of agency um, popping up. And I thought, great, he needs to read Zara um, and send him a copy. And um, I was lucky enough that he got it in his next roundup of thrillers. Uh, so that was a real moment of like, okay, you know, I can, this book can hold its own with the the big um, traditionally published, uh, you know, the thrillers that are on every, in every WH Smith and in every airport and in every supermarket. Um and that was a real, a really, really nice feeling because otherwise, um, as you'll know, and as um, all self-published writers know, it's a long, old hustle. You yeah. are endlessly yeah. with the marketing and, you know, have I posted now? But how about this my website? And am I curating my email list? And it is really exhausting. And um, it's really distracting from what you actually want to be doing, which is just getting on and writing the next book. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, it really is. And I think that that that's across the board, um, just for authors in general. Yeah. And I think even, you know, even those who have the big fancy deals and the big publishing houses and a massive marketing budget behind them, they still have to do a lot of it themselves. Yeah. Um, that is just the, the truth mm. of today's world. And 
And it's funny because as authors, you know, most of us are by nature quite introvert. You know, we like being on our own, scribbling away. Um, and it makes us really poorly suited <laughs> to being these uh, top stars. It's just yeah, we're yeah. like the worst in the world to be asked to do this. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, we muddle through as best we can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really glad that uh, you found publishers with that human aspect because, like you said, um, and obviously not to to paint a, a traditional publishers in the bad light at all. Um, I just, you know, I do think the process is so different. However, like you said, you still need to to technically do your own marketing. You still need to to ensure that that book succeeds despite having a name behind you or publishing uh, publishing house behind you. Um, because at the end of the day, you know you still need to get that book sold um and I think the market is so 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 competitive um I think especially in our genre our genre is quite a big one um that yeah it is it's difficult and I think um as you mentioned you know I think for me at least as as an indie author that's why I went the indie route initially obviously uh firstly being new to it like a couple years ago I had no idea what I was doing and I thought maybe that's like the best way in because I've been writing for ages as well but never really had the guts to to try and push it further and I think um for me and I, I know I've spoken to a few other uh, indie authors it's that the fear of the lack of control of not being in control of of your cover or, or essentially signing your baby away <laughs> and watching that change and you don't really have a say I think like for me that's my biggest fear because you put so much work and effort and tears like actual tears into it um that to see that completely changed and signed away I think that's our biggest fear so I'm really glad that you you didn't have that experience yeah and I think that is I mean that is why the, the strongest pro that independent publishers have is that um that you know they take on a lot of the well even the financial risk you know if you're wanting to do this really well on your own you've got to pay for a good uh development editor you've got to pay for a good copy editor you've got to pay for a professional cover designer and you know making that financial outlay when you don't know whether you'll even earn it back is a pretty risky and scary thing to do um so obviously if you have a publisher they do they take that risk um but with a small independent publisher, certainly with Burning Chair, they are really, really lovely people to work with. And they've been very open to, um, at no point have I felt like I've given over control. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I agree with that. And I think it's never too late to switch sides. I think if you if you find down the road that, you know, you don't want to be independently published anymore, you can essentially either pull whatever you've put up or hopefully... Uh, start querying and finding out if there would be anyone interested. Um, I think that's something I'll probably explore down the line as well. Obviously, if you've got a massive load of sales behind you, then that's very much in your favor. But if you've published independently and it hasn't sold that well, but your newest book is really good, that's what they'll be interested in. So I think, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's never too late to to choose. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if you uh, um, follow Jericho writers, uh, but Harry Bing. Writers, he's got a brilliant newsletter where he kind of goes through all the pros and cons of this and he himself has sort of done everything he's been self-published and traditionally published and small published small presses and and I think he still continues to do it that way it's like a real pick and mix approach to a writing career which I think that is probably the model of the future 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think I think attitudes towards uh, indie publishing has changed a lot over the years because I remember in the beginning, you know, it was always seen as, oh, you're, you're self-published, like it's probably really crap, like you probably can't write because you couldn't get a publishing deal. Um, and I think obviously, you know, if you really put the work in and you're really trying to better yourself, there's potential for actually having something decent and putting it out there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think people all often underestimate that writing is a craft and it is something that you have to learn, but it's also something you have to constantly work at to get better at. Um, you know, it's not so you can't just sit down and expect to write a symphony from, you know, having zero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you were yeah. the most physical person in the world, you just couldn't do that. Um, exactly yeah. and, and writing a novel is the same you've, you've really got to put in the time and you've got to learn and you've got to read widely and you've got to um, yeah and exactly like you say look at how other people have done it and what can you learn from that and how can you apply it to your own writing um, so I started writing The King's Pawn in 2014 so <laughs> that's how long I've been in my apprenticeship stage <laughs> that's where I was learning um, you know the first drafts were abysmal they were really dreadful because I just had no clue what I was doing um and it and it, yeah it's taken a long time um of coming back and trying again and learning and trying again and getting feedback and you know having good trusted beta readers I think is also really essential um having people that you know will tell you exactly what needs to be fixed and not just come back and say oh it was really nice uh, <laughs> you need poke the hole um and yeah, that's it. I I always my first my first reader is always my husband. He's also my plotter. Um, we always kind of dream up the plots together and then work out how to make them more outlandish and um, this sort of structural stuff we do together. And then I'll go away and write it and then you know give it back to him as first reader. But I've also got um, you know now almost like a team of people who some of whom have read all three that I've written so far. Um, and some, uh, you know, have, have just wanted to, someone who hasn't read the others to see whether, okay, does this work as a standalone? Could you read it on, on its own? Um, and that's great. And they're, they're almost all people that I don't know in real life, which I think is really helpful um, because I'm not going to run onto them on the street. They're not going to have to make polite conversation after they've just shredded my book. <laughs> I want them going past it. That is what's useful to me. Um, you know, the nice, kind comments, okay, a few, just so that I don't cry for too long. But, you know, you want to know what's wrong and how to make it better. And that's often a, a message that's much better delivered by someone you don't know. So you've written two novels, um, the second of which has been out four months now, which is huge. Um, can't believe it's been a month already. <laughs> Um, um, and yeah, I have read it, so I do highly recommend if uh, any of you listening have enjoyed the first novel, please do uh, pick that up. Um, it's got all the thrills and excitement and danger from number one, just uh, ramped up, obviously. And uh, yeah, it was really, really good. Um, so what is the next step for you as an author? What do you have planned? Um, so book three, I have actually just finished um, a pretty major draft. I mean, obviously, it's not finished, finished, because um, they never are until they're published. But um yeah, that is uh, on its way. Um, it won't be coming out as quickly. So the first book one and two came out, you know, hot on the tail one after the other because they were both ready at the same time. But yeah, this one will not be as close, which I'm actually quite glad about because it was a bit exhausting to launch two books within four months. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm quite glad to have a bit of a break before this one comes. Um, and then, yeah, um, in 
busy with storyline of book four and, and book five. I know I've got a pretty good outline of what's going to happen in book four. Um, and I'm just trying to sort of whip it into a, um, a shape that makes sense. And, you know, like an outline that, that has the right balance and the right moments of tension and that sort of thing. Book five, I'm still a bit unsure about where it's going. Um, but I know vaguely that, you know, it's the end. <laughs> and she uh, reached the top of the pole. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, don't know much beyond that. I really look forward to that. Yeah, well, I guess we will um, we'll wait and see then. Um, wait in anticipation and see what happens next. Very exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for coming on today. Um, so for any, any people listening who may not know where to find you, uh, where can we find you? And um, yeah, where else can we get your books aside from, from Amazon? Um, so they are both um, distributed by Ingrams, which means that in theory, you can order it from any bricks and mortar bookshop, um, certainly in Europe and the US. Um, I think it gets and Australia, it gets a bit more difficult um, in our part of the world. Um, but in theory, they should be able to order it. Um, Amazon, obviously, uh, Kindle readers, uh, they're there. Um, I have a website, lucyhof.com, um, which has links to all the books as well as a bit of sort of stories behind the stories, um, some behind the scenes, um, just updated a new page yesterday of some behind the scenes photos from Sierra Leone. Um, I'm on Instagram. I think it's Lucy underscore Hove underscore author. Um, and, uh, I do have a TikTok page, although I'm really rapidly falling out of love with it. I am. <laughs> Still clinging on to Twitter because I've always loved Twitter um, and it has been the place that I have found my writing tribe um, and I really could never have got this far without the kind of community and support of writing Twitter. That's perfect. Yeah, I will add all of the links um, and also links directly to your books as well, um, which, yeah, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do pick them up. Um, I really enjoyed them. Like I said, it's not something I normally read and I was very much uh, hooked. So, yeah. I highly recommend. <laughs> That's great to hear. They, I, I've always sort of pictured them as spy novels for people who don't like spy novels. Um, and uh, yeah, they certainly for a lot of the readers um, that has uh, rung true. Um, but, you know, people who thought, oh, no, I wouldn't really read a book like this, but oh, I was great. Um, you know, that's the real answer here. Well, thank you so much. Um, we will get into the novels in, in greater detail in later episodes. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for coming on um, for the very first episode, even though you've technically been here from the beginning of the intro. But yeah, this was official and I um, really loved it. Oh, it's been lovely talking to you. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been really nice talking to someone who's obviously really read the books and thought about them and enjoyed them. And, you know, at the end of the day for an author, that is, that's what it's all about. That is the best bit someone has read your book and liked it and wants to talk about it is yeah puts a big smile on my face so <laughs> thank you very much for having me um it's been really fun <laughs> <laughs>